Welcome to podcasts from the Community Relations Council, where we collect talks, seminars, and discussions around peace building and good community relations. In this episode, you'll find talks by Professor Alan Sharp, Dr. Eamon Phoenix, and historian Liz Gillis, who came together to discuss partition in Ireland during the years 1920 to 1922. This was during our special one-day regional conference entitled Partition, a Dividing Ireland in a Dividing Europe, held in Cookstown on the 21st of November 2019. We're pleased to have been able to bring you this event thanks to our partnership with National Heritage Lottery Fund Northern Ireland. After our three keynote talks, there is also a panel discussion focused on the topic of partition and how it particularly relates to contemporary society. Coming up now is the opening talk by Professor Alan Sharp. The British Treasury estimated that it cost £24,000 million to win the war. Now, you'd have to multiply that figure now. This, that's 1914 gold values. So you'd probably have to multiply that figure by something like 75 or 80 times. And I can't put all those noughts on, so... So it was, it was very expensive, it cost a lot of lives, it cost a lot of money, and it left a lot of bitterness. The old Europe, as I say, collapsed. And in the course of that war, which people, in order not to lose as much as to win, eventually came round to playing a very dangerous card, the card of trying to stir up nationalist discontent among the enemy. Now, that's a great idea, if you can, if you can play it. But, of course, you have then to say to people, now, um, this is the British speaking, OK, uh, now, all Poles... Um, all Frenchmen in Alsace, Danes, uh, all people around the German Empire who are not German, this, is, this message is for you. But Irishmen, Egyptians, Indians, people in Africa, put your fingers in your ears because this message isn't for you. We don't want you to have national self-determination. We want them to have national self-determination. And, of course, it, it, it was a suicidal card for either side to play because they were both multinational empires. They were not single uh, nationalities fighting this war. You, you, you could find very easily people to stir up if you wanted to. And, of course, the, 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 the key example was Poland, which had been swallowed by Austria, Prussia and Russia in the 18th century. So you have the anomaly that in the First World War, Poles are fighting on both sides. So it's very easy to try and see how you stir up the Poles. Then it was the, the other question is, why were you doing it? Well, in one sense, of course, you were trying to undermine the enemy. But then you have the big state of Austria, which you'd quite like to take out of the war. So on the one hand, as the American inquiry, the, 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 the think tank set up by President Woodrow Wilson to try and sort out what America's priorities would be at the end of the war. They made the point that what we're trying to do in Austria-Hungary is stir up nationalist discontent. Okay, great. But at the same time is we mustn't destroy Austria-Hungary because if we destroy Austria-Hungary, you can't take Austria-Hungary out of the war in one bit. So what are you going to try and do? Are you going to try and undermine Austria-Hungary so it falls apart? Or are you going to try and keep it together so it leaves the German, German alliance? And so that sort of dichotomy was, was there the whole time. And then in a remarkable series of events between 1917 and 1918, those three great empires in Central Europe collapse and the fourth empire in, in, the, in, in the East is defeated. So first of all, the two Russian revolutions of 1917. Then in 1918, Austria-Hungary simply implodes uh, at the end of the war. Having kept together remarkably well, given all the different nationalities within that empire, it had fought remarkably well as a single unit until the very end. And then, of course, in 1918, 
November 1918, the Kaiser abdicates and a German republic is, is created. And finally, the Ottoman Empire has been defeated. Now, before the war, there had been a lot of uh, talk across Europe of, within the, for the Austrian Empire, within the Russian Empire, and of course within, within the UK, of the idea of home rule for certain aspects, certain groups of people. The question, of course, at the end of the war was, was home rule be enough? Radicalisation had occurred not just in Ireland, where Sinn Féin, as we just heard, had become much the, the larger of the, uh, the, the, the two nationalist parties. But also in Austria-Hungary, in Poland and elsewhere, people who before the war might have settled for uh, a, the sort of um, thing which had happened in Austria-Hungary in 1868 when the, the, the Hungarians and the Germans had been given special privileges, people within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, like the Slavs or the Slovaks or the Czechs, might have settled for some degree of home rule, of, of self-government. But by the end of the war, that was no longer a possibility. Into the mix, then, we throw this man, President Woodrow Wilson, who in 1918, beginning in January and speaking through, the, through, through 1918, made a remarkable series of speeches. Now, by 1918, the war had been going on for the best part of four years. This, this war, was, which was supposed to be over by Christmas, had gone on and on, consuming people, consuming money, blowing apart anybody's ideas of what was possible in terms of governments raiding funds or what have you. And people wanted to know, and millions of dead after the Somme, after Passchendaele, after the, the events of Gallipoli. So what, what was this all about? And from America came this voice which seemed to promise uh, a better future, a new world. It, this was a time when very few people, actually in America, of course, saw Wilson in person. The only time you saw Woodrow Wilson, he was 18 to 20 feet tall, because the only time you saw him was in the newsreel, and he was in the cinema. He was enormous. And that physical size helped reject the message which he was putting across, which, appeared, which appealed to people across both sides of, of, the, of the lines. So he made the 14-point speech in January. He made the four principles speech, the four particulars, the five ends. Georges Clemenceau, my favourite man at the Paris Peace Conference, the French Prime Minister, was very cynical about this. He said God only required 10 points. The Prime, Woodrow Wilson seemed to require 29. So there's been enormous inflation of, of, of programmes since the time of Moses. But Wilson had this huge impact across, across, across the world, and in particular, the idea of self-determination, which had been used, as you like, as, as, as a weapon during the war, the idea of trying to disrupt the enemy by, by, by causing problems with internally. He, he said it wasn't a mere phrase. It's an imperative principle of action. So he turns what had been a strategy into a principle. Uh, and he says it's a principle of action which all statesmen will, will henceforth ignore at their peril. Now, the next bit people didn't listen to. It's the usual problem of what statesmen say. All well-defined national aspirations shall be called the utmost satisfaction that can be accorded them without, <laughs> here's the problem, without introducing new or perpetrating old elements of discord and antagonism be likely in time to break the peace of Europe and consequently of the world. Now, the 14 points were a wonderful, and Wilson's speeches were wonderful uh, propaganda exercises, but at the same time, how do you translate those into reality? It was very, very difficult, because the, the, the aspirations are contradictory. Uh, you, you cannot uh, create uh, any, any... Everyone wants to hear the bit that says, well, you can be free, but the other people don't want to hear that at all. So it was very difficult. And his Secretary of State, who's a very interesting sort of character of the Paris Peace Conference, Robert Lansing, he's, he's left on the, on the fringes, as, as, as really the, the, most of the foreign ministers were. He's a very interesting observer. And he said, this is bound to be the, the base of impossible demands on the Peace Congress and create trouble in many lands. What effect would it have on the Irish... The Indians, the Egyptians, and the nationalists among the Boers. The phrase is simply loaded with dynamite. 
It will graze hopes that can never be realised. It will fear costs thousands of lives. What a calamity the phrase was ever uttered. What misery it will cause. And of course, Lansing is right, of course. I mean, he, he, he's not right, he's wrong, because it wasn't cost thousands of lives. Self-determination has cost millions of lives since. Uh, it has been the excuse for all sorts of conflicts afterwards. So he's quite right to say that it's a, it's a big problem, um, and that it certainly caused problems there. Now, here in 1920, this is not the final map of Europe after the First World War. This is the map of Europe in 1920. And you'll see in 1920, there are a lot of states which became... Independent again after the end of the, 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 uh, the Cold War and the collapse of the, of the Soviet Empire. Um, 1991 made my lectures on 1919 uh, relevant for very students for the very first time. It, was, it saved my career in many ways. So uh, you can see places like Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Kurdistan even. Uh, the little white country just below Armenia, there's a Kurdistan in 1920. Now, Kurdistan, the, the whole issue of Kurdistan remains enormously uh, divisive even, even today. So you can see that in 1920, the idea of national self-determination had really taken hold in Europe in, in, in a big way. Now, that wouldn't be the final, the final, the final outcome, but it was, it was an example of what might have been happening. This is a, a, a statue in the middle of Paris, in the Place de la Concorde. Uh, it's the statue of Strasbourg. If you go to the Place de la Concorde, there are a whole series of statues in a circle, each representing a French city or, or, or town. And from 1871 through to 1918, that statue was draped in black. It was wound round with black crepe, representing the lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine, which had been taken away from France at the end of the Franco-Prussian War by the, by the Germans. And when he went to Paris as a young man, Lloyd George the British Prime Minister, said that he'd been deeply moved by this whole idea of the statue of Strasbourg veiled in mourning. And he talked several times during the Paris Peace Conference about the need not to create Alsace-Lorraine's in reverse, not to create a world in which nationalities were bartered about between one another and left in the wrong places as far as was possible. So it's, a, it's an ongoing theme of his throughout the Paris Peace Conference. And there's the great man himself, uh, David Lloyd George, a, a fascinating character. This was Germany, or this was the, the, the areas of Germany after the First World War which were in dispute. And uh, I'll look briefly at one or two of them, but I want to look most at what's happening in the East. Certainly, one of the things the French were very keen to do was to try and take away as far as possible uh, assets from Germany uh, and to make Germany weaker. Now, the problem they came up against, of course, was Woodrow Wilson and the idea of national self-determination and the idea that the, 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 the treaty coming out of the Paris Peace Conference would not be the same as the treaty which had come out of the, the Vienna Conference of 1814 to 1815, when when states have been quite deliberately created as far as possible in terms of balance, in terms of resources, in terms of population, in order to keep a sort of, a sort of a, a structural balance, a balance of power within Europe. Wilson said the balance of power was an out, outmoded principle. It shouldn't be adopted anymore. What you must do now is try and give people the chance to be self-governing. Now, of course, what Wilson was thinking of, being the president of a nation of immigrants, was the idea of, 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 of civic nationalism. The idea that you could be born in Ireland or Britain or Greece or Italy, come to America and become American. You could be an American. You could choose to be an American. The problem in Eastern Europe was that people never believed that. 
In Eastern Europe, the idea was much more that you were determined. You were determined in your nationality by where you were born, by your race, by your language, and by your religion. So you couldn't choose to be a Pole if you'd been born in Ireland. You were either Irish or you were Polish. You couldn't be both, or, 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 or you couldn't change. Now, the problem, of course, is, is that uh, Wilson's idea of civic nationalism, which has much to recommend it, uh, which came up immediately in, in Europe against the idea of ethnic nationalism, particularly in Eastern Europe, where the, the, the whole issue of migrations, wars, movement of populations had created not nice, neat blocks of Poles, Austrians, what have you, but into a sort of mosaic of, of different little states. If you gave each nationality a colour and then put them on the map, it would be a mosaic, uh, uh, or as my late colleague Ray Pearson, my most elegant, a tessellated pavement, which is a, a nice phrase. So when, it, when, when, when the French tried to take the Rhineland away from Germany, they came up against Lloyd George, and they came up against Wilson, who refused to allow it to happen. Uh, they weren't going to barter ter territory about in, in that way. But the big problem uh, which Wilson had helped to create, which was not entirely his fault, was in point 13 of the, of, the, of the 14 points, he'd said that they would set up a free and independent Poland with secure access to the sea, and that Poland would be made up of the Polish, the, the elements, the, the strongly Polish elements. Now, first of all, you've got to define what nationality is. That, 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 that's the first difficulty. And then the second difficulty was, even if we could work out roughly what Polish meant, the bit that was Polish, clearly Polish, was quite a long way from the sea. And there was a need to get that Polish uh, state access to the sea because one of the reasons that people felt that the old Polish state in the 18th century had collapsed totally was the moment when it became a, a landlocked state without access to the Baltic. So how was this to be accomplished? Well, the idea comes up of a Polish corridor, a corridor which will allow uh, Poland access to the to, to the, the, the Baltic Sea through the port of Danzig, Gdansk. The next problem you came up against was Danzig was a German city, perhaps by immigration over many years, but an old Hanseatic city in which the population was almost entirely German and German-speaking. So how could you... What, 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 was, what was to be done? Well, originally, when, when the Paris Peace Conference set itself up, it set up a whole series of commissions to try and sort out the different problems. And the Polish Commission came up with the idea that they would simply uh, give Danzig to Poland and create a quite large corridor going to Poland down the Vistula, uh, that hatched area, the, 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 uh, the hatched area you can see down there would all go to Poland, including the black, the black bit around East, East Prussia. Now, that came up against Lloyd George's determination not to allow Poland to be too large. The Poles had come to the peace conference completely. Uh, it, it was absolutely incredible they were there as an independent nation. Because I said at the beginning of the, the, the talk, they had been part of three great empires. And that required, for them to become independent, required first for one part of the that the peace would occupy them to be defeated, and then for the other two bits to be defeated. So you had to have a, a situation in which, uh, first of all, Russia is defeated, 
one of the allied powers, and then Austria-Hungary and Germany defeated the other side, which creates then the, 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 the vacuum of power into which an independent Poland can exist. If, it hadn't, if one side or the other had won without that happening, what might have happened was that the bit of Poland that had belonged to the other side might have been taken out and perhaps set up as a sort of home rule area. That was the most the Poles could have hoped for in 1914. They couldn't have hoped for an independent Poland. But when they came to the Paris Peace Conference, they were not shy in demanding great chunks of territory. Going back to the 14th and 15th century, um, there's a, a famous quote by Lloyd George where he said that, or by, by, by one, by one uh, uh, observer, who said when they got the, the Poles in to talk about their, their, their plans, and he said he began at 4 o'clock in the afternoon in the, in the 12th century, and he reached 1919 about 8 o'clock at night. And then they had the Czechs come in after that. So they, 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 they rapidly passed these parcels to commissions to deal with rather than to listen to themselves. But Lloyd George was very keen not to allow the idea of Alsace to reigns in reverse, not too many Germans to finish up in, in Poland. So he, first of all, sets up in, uh, in, in, in the time of uh, March, April 1919, the idea of plebiscites in the area of East Prussia, Allenstein and Marienwerder up at the top there, which, which reduces, which, which vote eventually to stay as part of Germany. So that reduces the, the, uh, the idea of the, the Polish corridor to a little bit. He also get, manages to persuade Wilson that making Danzig a free city uh, and the old Hanseatic League tradition uh, was Wilson's own idea, which it really wasn't. But it, well, Lloyd George was very good at persuading people that it was their, their idea and not his. So Poland gets the corridor to the sea. It gets control of the, uh, the, the, the economy of, 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 of Danzig, but it, Danzig is, becomes a free city, self-governing, uh, and, and not part of Poland. And then the second aspect is that and the original commission had given the whole of Upper Silesia to, uh, to, uh, to Poland. And Lloyd George was advised by some of his advisors that this was not a good idea. Um, so when, he, when, when the draft treaty was given to Germany in, in May 1919, it had shocked many people. No one had really looked at the treaty as a whole. It had been assembled in, in a rush, and nobody had looked at the whole treaty, and the British delegation in particular was, was, was really upset by it. So Lloyd George calls his cabinet across to, 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 to Paris in June and says, what, what changes shall we make? And they give him a series of, 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 of ideas, one of which is that Upper Silesia must, must be determined by a plebiscite. There must be a chance for the Germans in, in Upper Silesia to have a say. And he manages to persuade the, the Council of Four, Clemenceau, Lloyd, Wilson and, and Orlando, that this should happen. Again, by pointing out to Wilson that all he's asking Wilson to do is to, uh, to, to stand by his own principles. He said, of course the Poles will win, don't worry about that. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, we should give people a chance. Well, he didn't think that, of course. He'd said privately that he would as soon give Upper Silesia to the Poles as he would give a clock to a monkey. So he wasn't too keen on the Poles getting Upper Silesia. So Upper Silesia is very interesting because uh, in many ways, and there's a very, very good book by T.K. Wilson which parallels Upper Silesia with the Ulster question and the problems of violence and the problems of... Uh, the Frontiers of Violence is the title of the book. And it's a brilliant... Now, here's an interesting thing. This is the result uh, of the plebiscite in Upper Silesia. The plebiscite was held in March 1921. 60% of the votes went to Germany. 40% went to Poland. But... Everybody during the Paris Peace Conference was very keen on drawing maps. 
And this is a Polish-French map. And you'll see that the Polish vote is in red. Makes poll, the makes look as though Poles have had a huge majority. But the problem with plebiscites, well, we've had various problems with plebiscites recently, haven't we? Um, the problem with plebiscites is that you ask a simple question and you get a very complicated answer. And then you have to work out what the answer means and how you judge the result. If you look at the, the overall result, 60% for Germany, 40% for Poland, okay. But the way in which that was distributed was interesting because most of the countryside voted to be part, part of Poland. Most of the towns and the, the, the smaller uh, and the cities voted to be part of Germany. So that you have these... The map is drawn to maximise the impact, if you like, of the Polish vote in order to try and persuade people what to do. So how are you going to, how are you going to interpret the result? Are you going to judge by... Com is it going to be overall? So 40% goes to Poland, 60% goes to Germany. Is it going to be by commune? Are you going to try and draw lines around the, the various bits? This was left very much to the British and the French, who had by this time become responsible for executing the Treaty of, of, of Versailles because the Americans had withdrawn, and they couldn't agree. So they handed the whole thing over to the League of Nations, and the League of Nations uh, turned out th this is what they eventually did. The, 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 the bit that was in yellow remained part of Germany. The green bit, which was included most of the industrial area, that was the real prize from Upper Silesia. Uh, the, the coal mines and, and, the, and the industrial area that went to, went to, uh, went, went to, went to Poland. The British were not keen on the on the. <laughs> the other interesting thing about this was that this, this, the, the League of Nations Commission, which decided this, was chaired by a Japanese. Now you could not have imagined in 1914 that a major issue in Europe would be decided by a, a commission which was headed by a Japanese diplomat. Uh, the world had changed totally. The British weren't too keen on the, on the, on the results of the, of the, the thing. They, they would have moved the, the frontier much further east and given Germany more of, of Upper Silesia than it actually got. But the, Maurice Hankey, who was the secretary of the British cabinet, said the, 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 the committee had been made up of uh, two Dagos, a pro-French Belgian and a chink. So it wasn't particularly politically correct in his, 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 in his assessment. They didn't like, didn't like the result. So here's the, here's the, here's the, the Silesian goose and the, the judgment of Geneva. A partition. And of course, both sides are dissatisfied. Uh, the Silesian goose or the judgment of Geneva. And the League of Nations says, there, I've given you each a fair share. And Germany and Poland together, bitterly, he's got all of the stuffing. So no one's ever satisfied with, with, with partition. But it's very interesting parallel to what's happening in Ulster, almost at exactly the same time. And Wilson, of course, had come up against the reality of Europe in 1918 and 1919, where he said, you know, I had no idea that there all these nationalities existed. Uh, and they were all coming to him. There were petitioners trying to arrive to talk to Wilson, including, of course, a delegation from Ireland, which he refused to see. And he said, you don't know, you can't appreciate. Anxieties I've experienced as a result of the many millions having their hopes raised by what I've, what I've said. And he said on the boat going over to Paris that he believed that he'd raised so many expectations amongst the people that the outcome would be a tragedy of disappointment, as indeed it was. And Lansing was, also, was always there with the, with the snide remark as well. The least of a clever phrasing may be a curse unless the phrases are put to the test of sound, practical application before being uttered. Think of the feelings of the author when he counts the dead who died of the coined the phrase. So that's Europe after 1921. Not quite as many independent states as we saw in the map of 1920, but very different to the map of 1914. 
Uh, Czechoslovakia now exists. Austria and Hungary are the rumps of the... Austria-Hungary is, is, Austria is, is tiny compared to whatever. The Germans would complain about the Treaty of Versailles, which cost them something like 10% of their territory, 12% of their population. The Hungarians lost 60% of their land and 66% of their population. They were the people who really were, 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 were hit very badly by, 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 by the, the treaties at the end of the war, not so much the Germans. But the Germans were powerful, the, Austrian, the Hungarians were not. The other problem, of course, that arises after the, the division of Europe is that uh, there are still minorities. Now, we reckon that something like half, the, 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 the treaty of, of, at the end of the First World War reduced by half the number of people who were living in states in which they were not the dominant majority. But what you'd created was a whole series of new minorities. What often people had been the majority before now became the minority. Now, these figures are, are pretty... They're, 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 they tried to show that there are more uh, minorities in the same area after 1919. They were, in the, they were given by Karl Schusnig, who was, the, Kurt Schusnig, who was the, the, the last president of Austria. So I'm not entirely sure they're totally accurate. But it gives a flavour of the problems which were, which were caused. And so Lloyd George is the link, if you like, between what's happening in Paris in 1919 and what's going to happen in, in Ireland in 1920. And he talks here about this wonderful conjuring trick he's going to do, where he's going to divide Ulster and the, the, the Republic, or the, the, the Free State, put the, the two into a hat, and that will come together again. And I've never done this trick before, he says, but uh, I have now proceeded to cut this map into two parts and place them in the hat. After a suit of interval, they will be found to have come together of their own accord. Aside, at least I hope so, I've never done this trick before. And the problem with Lloyd George is briefly summed up by this wonderful cartoon by David Lowe, my favourite cartoonist of the 20th century. And David Lowe said he could never do a cartoon of Lloyd George without Lloyd George smiling. No matter how censorious he felt about Lloyd George, at the end of the day, when he'd drawn the picture, Lloyd George always had this beatific face. And here he is with his beatific face here. So this is everything explained. Behind him is the two-headed donkey, and that was how Lowe always drew the British coalition government of 1919 to 1922, which was, of course, almost entirely conservative. The conservative, not least because the, the 73 Sinn Féiners never took their seats at Westminster, the 335 conservative members elected in 1918 were an effective majority in a house of over just, just over 700 members, but with 70 taken away they had a majority. So Lloyd George was the Liberal Prime Minister of essentially a coalition government which depended entirely on the Conservatives. Walter Long, the, uh, the, the First Lord of the Admiralty, said after the election, George thinks he won the election. He didn't. It was the Tories that won the election, and he will find that out. So Lloyd George was never free. On the, on the, so there's the, there's the, there's the two-headed donkey. This says, says it is a racehorse. On the right is the Tory party. Uh, this pretty gentleman is a self-sacrificing saviour of mankind. So that's a, this is the trade. And in, in his hand, Lloyd George, who was a free trader, had the anti-dumping bill, which was effectively a protectionist uh, policy. So this is free trade. And on the bottom, it says, I am a blank, but why go into details? Every archive I worked on on Lloyd George, at some point, the word liar appears. Lloyd George was brilliant at what we might call constructive ambiguity, which some people would say was lying. Uh, he had the hope that what he said to one person one day would not get back to somebody else, and that another day would come along and it would all be right. So he could tell Craig, don't worry about the Boundary Commission, it'll, it'll, it'll solidify Ulster. He could tell Collins, 
Don't worry about the Boundary Commission. It'll make Ulster so small, it'll be economically unviable, and they'll want to come back together in like he did in his hat. So there we are. A, 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 a huge change in the whole map of Europe. The idea of national self-determination very much to the fore, but the problems which it causes continue to explode even today. Thank you very much. That was all from Professor Alan Sharp. Next up is the talk by Dr. Eamon Phoenix. If you were walking down the street in Cookstown or Dungannon or Belfast or Dublin, you know, in 1912, for example, and, uh, you know, this was British-governed Ireland from Dublin Castle, an all-Ireland police force, the Royal Irish Constabulary, a court system centred in Dublin and the four courts, um, these counties, Tyrone, Fermanagh, Londonderry, Derry, part of the Northwest Circuit, judges coming up for the assizes, uh, customs officials, agricultural officials from Dublin, the police making their returns to the intelligence branch in Dublin Castle about the size of the Orange Order or the Ancient Order of Hibernians, um, a chief secretary um, commuting between Dublin and the cabinet in London, a liberal uh, in 1912, a viceroy or Lord Lieutenant representing the crown in Ireland, centred in the Viceregal Lodge in the Phoenix Park, but making peregrinations around the island by train, opening a public building in Belfast. In fact, Lord Wimborne, the Viceroy, was due in Belfast on Easter Monday 1916, and the fact that his train didn't come as the Guard of Honour, Mounted Guard of Honour of the RIC, waited at Belfast uh, Great Northern Station in the sweltering sun. That was the first sign there was something wrong in Dublin, the Easter Rising. So that was the Ireland. And if somebody had said to you in that street in Cookstown or Dungannon, you know, in 10 years' time, Ireland will be divided. It will be a hard border. It will have massive consequences, uh, political, social, economic, cultural. Um, and indeed, 10 million men, as we've just heard, will die in a great war globally, but mainly in Europe. And there'll be a rising against that background of the First World War in Dublin, which will change the course of Irish history and change politics as we know it now. You would have thought that person was mad, looking at the all-Ireland situation that was British-governed Ireland, what's called down to 1922 as the Irish government. The Irish government have proclaimed this, proclaimed the Doyle in 1919, proclaimed Sinn Féin. The Irish government have decided... Uh, to move policemen from Cookstown to Tralee, or vice versa. They would have been absolutely astonished. And so partition was something, while it had been scouted by Gladstone in 1885, he knew of no doctrine tolerable, he said, which could justify Ulster, or a part of Ulster, standing in the way of progress for the rest of Ireland. So while it had been whispered in the previous half-century, no one expected partition at all. In fact, the Orange Order had its headquarters in Dublin, in 1912 in Rutland Square, now Parnell Square, and the emerging leader of Irish unionism, but really Ulster unionism, Sir Edward Carson, was not only a southerner, an all-Ireland unionist, but an MP for Dublin University until almost the very end of this period. So that's how remote partition seemed at the very beginning. And of course, Irish nationalism was led by the man with the top hat, John Redmond, his very astute deputy, who was Dublin-based, John Dillon, a son of the revolutionary John Blake Dillon of the Young Islanders. In the north, Joe Devlin, a brilliant organiser and orator who had organised nationalist Ulster in nine counties behind the Home Rule Party and revived his green orange men, 
the ancient order of Hibernians, very strong in Tyrone at that time. And of course, you had a liberal government uh, in power, a very weak liberal government until propped up by the votes of 80 Irish nationalist MPs um, in 1911, 1912. Because the liberals had, of course, lost two general elections in 1910, emerging from a crisis in British politics, a bit like today. The Tories were blocking liberal legislation in the House of Lords, which had a Tory majority from time immemorial and a veto. And it wasn't until Herbert Henry Asquith, the liberal prime minister, and not a very adamant home ruler at all, in fact, a liberal imperialist, turned to John Redmond and said, will you support our domestic programme in return for home rule? And Redmond demanded all Ireland home rule, which led to Winston Churchill, a former Tory, son of Lord Randolph, who crossed the floor in 1903 to come to Belfast to mark this, the consummation of this new relationship between Irish nationalism, constitutional nationalism, and the Liberal government. Um, he came to Belfast on the 8th of February 1912, Churchill as First Lord of the Admiralty, to address a great Home Rule meeting, chaired by Belfast's premier industrialist, Lord Perry, William Perry, John Redmond, one of the major speakers. Churchill was mobbed, of course, by shipyard workers as he emerged from luncheon at the Grand Central Hotel and Royal Avenue. And the story goes that um, as he was lunching with Lord Perry, he heard the surging mass outside, epithets, loyalist songs, and suddenly he heard them singing Rule of Britannia. And he allegedly said to Lord Perry, that sounds good, I'm the First Lord, Perry said. Perry said, I wouldn't be too sure, as he emerged to a thumping reception outside, smuggled through the back streets to the Falls Road, denied the Ulster Hall, which was taken over by shipyard workers. He spoke um, in, of course, Celtic Park, um, which was on the fringes of the Catholic Falls Road. Uh, he emerged with perhaps um, a more um, kind of astute view of the Ulster question. He knew there would be unionist resistance to home rule. He began to think about excluding, as he put it, the preponderatingly orange areas, talking about this. His wife wasn't so lucky. She had a miscarriage the following week. And of course, Ulster resistance is being planned in these days in this plain Victorian mansion on the shores of Belfast Lock. Craig Avon, they're trying to save it. They're having difficulty getting money because it's seen today as a single identity building rooted very much in the orange unionist tradition. But it's here um, in the ample orangerie, which is the billiard room that Craig and Carson planned undoubtedly. Ulster resistance in these years, the rise of, first of all, the Ulster Covenant, that quasi-political religious document which invoked the use of force, the right to use force, if Home Rule was imposed on the Protestant North. And almost immediately afterwards, in January 1913, the rise of Carson's army, the first really open paramilitary organisation in Irish history since the volunteers of the 18th century. And of course, Carson himself signing the covenant on the 28th of um, February 1912 at the Ulster Hall. But his aim was to save the whole of Ireland in the folds of the Union Jack. Because he was by birth, um, family background, education, political representation, a member of that southern Protestant minority. His mother was Isabella Lambert from County Galway. From her, he inherited his worldview, defending the Union, defending the Empire. And of course, Carson knew the road to Galway, to that great mansion 
at Castle Ellen outside Atherne Rye, where he spent his childhood and teenage holidays far better than he knew the road to Belfast. Belfast was an appendage towards the end of a long political career in 1910. I mean, Carson was now, you know, um, well in his 50s. Um, um, his best days, in those days, appeared to be gone when he agreed to accept the leadership of Ulster Unionism. His aim was to use the Ulster question, the perceived and indeed real Protestant majority in the northeast and its industrial might to block home rule and to kill it dead and maintain the status quo. He actually believed that Redmond would abandon home rule if it meant what Redmond called in nationalist terms the mutilation of the Irish nation. And of course, the unionist fears against home rule, home rule is Rome rule, the economic, um, they believed, um, devastation that would be wrought to Belfast's tripod of linen, shipbuilding and engineering, as well as statues to Redmond and Joe Devlin and Skin the Goat, who was uh, the man who had, drove the, uh, who had driven the Invincibles at the Phoenix Park murders. These statues, notionally in the grounds of Belfast City Hall, which is semi-ruinous, they believe, under home rule. Joe Devlin reassuring uh, the Irish party, Redmond and Dillon, and of course they're reassuring the Liberal government that there's a great mass of Protestant home rulers out there. There were some, men of independent means, lawyers, um, doctors, uh, large landowners, people like Armour of Balamani. Um, but they were a minority, but they had their separate covenant, um, defending home rule and calling for reconciliation with the Roman Catholic population of Ireland in their covenant of 1913. And of course, everybody knew in this war of nerves that began in 1912, over the third Home Rule Bill for All Ireland, everybody knew the real pressures would come outside Parliament. Because within Parliament, liberalism plus nationalism plus the 40 or so Labour MPs equaled a majority for Home Rule. And remember, the teeth of the House of Lords had been drawn by the Parliament Act of 1911. They could delay for two years um, a, an important measure like Home Rule, but they could no longer block it. And so the floodgates seemed open for a Home Rule Parliament functioning in Dublin by the autumn of 1914. And in fact, Joe Devlin, we just seen, was seen as the coming man. Within a year or two, he would be in his 40s, the Home Rule Prime Minister of a government with very limited powers. The real powers reserved to Westminster, finance, the post office, the police, uh, and indeed, of course, um, the crown, and of course, um, peace and war. They would all rest in London. Um, this was to be a very limited parliament for Irish affairs. Nonetheless, of course, um, no resolution was in prospect by 1914. The idea of county option for a temporary period, welcomed by Redmond and Devlin as guaranteeing a united Ireland within six years, it was rejected by Carson. Now, had Redmond been, been prepared to accept the principle of partition as almost inevitable in 1912, he could have negotiated a much smaller excluded area, a much smaller potential Northern Ireland. I mean, if he had stood rock firm behind county option. Uh, but, but accepted that it might be permanent after plebiscites, um, then he would have got really a 28-county island plus the municipal boroughs of Derry and Uri because there had been plans for plebiscites in those areas. And you have, would have had a Northern Ireland emerging probably with no unionist parliament, 
with an 80%, if not more, Protestant majority, safe for unionism as the rock of Gibraltar. But in this period, the period Alan has just sort of given us such insight into, Ulster unionists are almost um, exude, if you like, the kind of characteristics of European nationalists, especially after 1918. European nationalists, whether the Czechs or the Poles, and we've just heard about Silesia, they wanted buffer zones, greater territory than they were entitled to on the basis of pure demographics. And so, for example, the Ulster Unionists initially demanded nine counties, but three of them were overwhelmingly Catholic and nationalist, and they rode back on six. Two of those, of course, and uh, one city were nationalist by small majorities. Um, on a plebiscite, they would have gone under a Dublin parliament. So in many ways, you have this nationalist tendency in European terms within Ulster Unionism after 1919. Um, and of course, the Great War changes everything because, of course, um, Ireland had been on the brink of civil war by August 1914. The equivalent of the world's press, a few French and German journalists, American journalists, were actually in Belfast in July 1914, covering the potential outbreak of civil war. We know it was close. Papers discovered recently in the Braidwater spinning mill files from Ballymena, owned by the Young family, who were close allies of Carson and uh, the UVF, uh, reveal a UVF plan to evacuate women and children to hold the line of the river ban in the event of what they saw as a domestic civil war with the Irish volunteers pressing on the ban from Newry to Coleraine and the Ulster volunteers holding out. In fact, it was in those last days of peace that the Buckingham Palace Conference failed. That last round table attempt to resolve the Irish question on the basis of consent. There you had Carson and Redmond and Asquith and Lansdowne and Bono Law standing around looking at maps. But of course, as Churchill put it, a man who knew the dreary steeples well because he had visited his cousins at Castle Leslie on the Armagh to Rowan Monaghan border very often. You know, Churchill's mother and the wife of Sir John Leslie of Glasslock County Monaghan were sisters. And Churchill has spent his childhood remembering, he said, going round those big houses. Castle Saunderson, uh, Castle Leslie, the ancestral home in Monaghan, Tynan Abbey. Lord, the Caledon, Caledon Castle. He knew all of these. And everywhere he went, he saw these dreary steeples of churches of different denominations. And he said of the Buckingham Palace Conference, it became mired in the muddy byways of Fermanagh and Tyrone. It was an earnest of things to come. A sense that regardless of the Great War, which would see the Irish question, if you like, um, kicked into touch, uh, if you like, um, placed in kind of suspended animation, that we would return to those dreary steeples as they returned to Silesia and the Sudetenland after the Great War. Of course, the two volunteer armies were joined by their leaders, John Redmond, for the Irish Brigade, as he called the Irish National Volunteers, those who supported Redmond and hadn't broken away under Owen MacNeill. On the other side, you had the 36th Ulster Division, composed of the Ulster Volunteers. And they would go, they were among the 200,000 Irishmen, indeed the spine of those 200,000 Irishmen, who fought 
in the Great War. It's interesting what happens after that, because, of course, the Irish volunteers had been inspired by the UVF. Michael Laffin put it very well 20, 30 years ago when he wrote about Carson creating the UVF. Carson reignited the Fenian flame of Irish nationalism. That demand for a totally independent Ireland, cradled by the Irish Republican Brotherhood, you know, um, in a cell in Dublin with old Tom Clark, an ex-Fenian prisoner, and men who had been trained in Ulster with the IRB revival, men like um, Sean McDermott, men like Bulmer Hobson. And of course, they had a dream. England's difficulty would be Ireland's opportunity. And that emerges, of course, the UVF gun running at Larne, making the UVF the most powerful force, had tilted the country towards civil war. But of course, by 1915, it was all changed. Volunteers were leaving. The last march pass of the UVF on their way to training in England and then the Battle of the Somme, that blend of heroism and catastrophe, which would, of course, create, if you like, the unionist blood sacrifice to match, of course, the nationalist or the republican blood sacrifice of Easter week. And here we have Joe, Joe Devlin's volunteers, men who joined the Connacht Rangers from the Falls and Ardoyne, uh, marching through the city, led by the Clan Ollo Piper Band, to take the, the train for County Cork, where they would be trained en route for the Dardanelles, and of course their role in the Battle of the Somme. And of course, it's during this period that Edward Carson, after that battle in um, uh, July, November, 1916, but after the first flush of Ulster Protestant losses on the Somme, Carson made a scarcely reported speech in Belfast in which he said that Home Rule had been killed and was buried on the battlefield of the Somme because he said he realised that here you had a unionist blood sacrifice of the youth of the Shankill in Mid-Ulster who had given up their lives for Britain and the Empire, and he believed that a British government would be held to account after the war by an Ulster demanding exclusion from the nationalist Republican project. And of course, the war created the opportunity for the rising Pierce and Connolly, of course, with the um, uh, IRB, uh, the Irish Volunteers, the Citizen Army, come on them on, hold Dublin for a week, We'll hold Dublin for a week and save Ireland, said Sean McDermott. We know what he meant, because by then things had gone wrong. Casement was arrested. The German guns were lost, and you were into the Easter Rising. It wasn't so much the Rising as the executions which changed everything. After summary court-martial, um, some of the, execu the court-martials lasted little more than 15 minutes, we're told by William Wiley, who prosecuted and tried to defend the Easter uh, rebels. And, of course, it was Lady Fingal. No sympathy for the rising said, you know. Um, it was like watching blood flowing from under a closed door. The impact of the executions on the public imagination. And, of course, Carson... Now in the cabinet, a coalition government, Redmond refused to join. He felt he would keep his hands free. But of course, the rising, the psalm, that changes everything. And indeed, we've heard from our presentation at the beginning from the Nerve Centre that in fact, of course, there were attempts after the rising to settle the Irish question on the basis of partition on the basis of exclusion. It was a softer word. The Lord George negotiations in the summer of 1916 were amazing in that 
Redmond desperate uh, to maintain the credibility of the Irish Parliamentary Party, threatened by the executions, the tide of public opinion towards the ideals of Irish republicanism, and Edward Carson, who had a much greater imperial sense than most Ulster Unionists. They both believed they needed to settle the Irish question now in the interests of you know, the empire and the war. And of course, Redmond wanted to achieve a home rule settlement to maintain his party's existence against all the odds, as a new amorphous movement called Sinn Féin was emerging. Lloyd George, as we heard, was very dexterous and very devious. He wasn't called the Welsh wizard for nothing. In fact, he inspired George Mitchell, who produced our agreement, I suppose, through a negotiation um, just over 20 years ago, because he dealt with the um, uh, two parties separately. He was the interlocutor, dealing with Carson and Craig in this room, Redmond and Dillon in this room. He told each what they wanted to hear. There would be home rule for 26 counties, he told Redmond, but partition would be temporary, resolved after the war. But he, he told Carson it would be permanent. And he gave Carson a letter under pressure, saying that no matter what happened, part partition would be permanent and enduring. A letter which Carson used with the Ulster Unionist Council in the Ulster Hall to carry the scheme, abandoning the lost counties of Cavan, Monaghan and Donegal. Men felt shamed and dishonoured, a Unionist historian said, Carson afterwards, aware that this was a sacrifice, a shift. He staged his, he'd, he'd, he'd uh, mortgaged his credibility on it under a darker hall at the back of the city centre, St Mary's, on Black Friday, as they called it, 1916, 23rd of June. Recently, it was Brexit Day. The Nationalists had a very fractious meeting. By a majority of two to one, they accepted partition. It would be temporary. Redmond was attacked by the Nationalists from west of the band accused of being a partitionist, abandoning the hopes of northern nationalists. He threatened to resign. So it was a bit of a dog's dinner was emerging. But of course, it would be finally killed when the southern unionists caused eruptions on the Tory backbenches. This was a surrender to force, they said. This was a surrender to the men of 1916. And Walter Long and Lord Lansdowne, both aristocrats who represented Southern Unionism, pled the Southern Unionist veto, the veto of that 12% in the South, who were allied to Britain for the last time. They wrecked the Lloyd George scheme. You might have had a peaceful partitioning of Ireland in 1916, because there was no Unionist Parliament, a Nationalist safeguard, and the Unionists of the North weren't going under a Dublin Parliament, a Unionist safeguard. Carson lost credibility, never quite recovered. Afterwards, he talks about Council of Ireland. He still has a duty of care to his own people. He's haunted later years by abandoning them. Redmond doesn't recover. The Home Rule Party is now, gets a double whammy. The Easter Rising and the executions are now associated with partition at the Black Friday conference. The Irish Convention fails. Redmond moves close to the Southern Unionists, offering them 40% of the seats, offering unionism in Ireland. 40% of the seats in a, um, a Home Rule Parliament and also an Upper Chamber of Senate, which would be heavily Unionist influence. It was the most generous offer of Irish nationalism ever to Irish Protestants. It's still rejected, as Ulster says, no, though a lot of the Southern Unionists buy into it, ensuring their place in the 
Southern Senate in the Irish Free State, where they held 50% of the seats after 1922. Sinn Féin on the rise, being rejected in the north, because northern nationalism, whether in East Tyrone or here in South Armagh, doesn't like two things about Sinn Féin. They don't like its abstentionism. That would leave Westminster to the kind of devices of Carsonism, who would then be able to heavily influence an Irish settlement along the lines of partition. And they, they don't like these untried leaders with names like de Valera and Markovich, foreign names. And of course, de Valera is now the president of Sinn Féin. The 1918 election, of course, changes everything. It's influenced by the conscription crisis, the threat of conscription on nationalist Ireland, uniting nationalists and the Catholic Church, and then it's withdrawn, but the damage is done. That sort of truce, armistice and the railway carriage in France precipitating the 1918 election, which produces two things. A Sinn Féin landslide in nationalist Ireland, effectively the South, 65% of the vote in what becomes the Irish Free State, the 26 counties. But of course, in the North, because of a redistribution of seats, the Redistribution Act not only gives votes to women over 30, but it gives votes and more seats to the cities of the United Kingdom. Belfast goes from four seats to ten. Eleven, if you include Queen's University. Nine, nine of those, ten of those are unionist seats. Suddenly you have a Carsonite revanche in the north. Carson has moved to Belfast, Duncairn, a slum constituency in Belfast, uh, the provost of Trinity said as he departed. You know, officially abandoning his own people. The poverty of Belfast is shock to him. And of course, Sinn Féin was committed to setting up a Doyle in Dublin, a government for an Irish Republic, um, if you like, redeclaring the Republic of 1916. And it's on that day, the 21st of January, when only a handful of TDs actually meet, that the first shots ring out in Tipperary in the War of Independence. Um, now, of course, um, Belfast had been a hotbed for industrial trouble, but that was soon washed away as the lines tightened the uncertainty facing Ireland as the men return from the Great War. The old differences begin to reassert themselves. And in London, this man becomes important. Sir Walter Long, um, he's first Lord of the Admiralty. He's an Anglo-Irish squire, a former Chief Secretary for Ireland. He had blocked partition in 1916 because his own people, the Whitlow gentry, and their colleagues would be abandoned to the green fly. But now he's chairing a committee. It's set up exactly 100 years ago in October 1918, and it has to decide the future of Ireland. Will it be a home rule parliament with minority safeguards for the whole island? No, they go for partition. And two parliaments, one in Belfast and Dublin, responding to what Alan has talked about, Wilson's emphasis on self-determination, and also extricating Britain from the graveyard of British politicians. Well, we don't know what's going to happen to Boris Johnson. But, you know, basically, they could leave Irish affairs in the hands of Irish men, still within the UK. That was the idea. But the big question was, what would Ulster be? Would it be nine counties, the historic province of the Covenant? Would it be six? Would it be less? Long and many in his Liberal Conservative Committee reflecting the coalition, which was Tory-dominated, many of those members of the Long Committee favoured uh, a nine-county Ulster with its own parliament. This would hasten a united Ireland, they said. There would be a 44% Catholic nationalist uh, minority 
in the whole province. So they're very wafer-thin unionist majority in a working administration. And this, of course, would hasten what they saw as Britain's national interest. But of course, at the last minute, James Craig enters the, uh, the frame. Craig and the Ulster Unionists, uh, still notionally led by Carson, who's about to retire, had accepted um, this because they um, had accepted um, self-determination in the north, but they didn't want the nine counties. And just to give you one quote, um, on the 19th of November 1919, James Craig was interviewed by a key member of the committee, Fisher, the education minister, and he reported back what Craig said. Craig expressed himself against the inclusion of the whole of Ulster and thought six counties preferable. The reason given was that Protestant representation would be strengthened, and he also thought that six, six counties would be an area easier to govern than the whole province. From that moment, even though the committee still propped up six counties, it became less likely. In March 1920, Lloyd George and the cabinet overturned it. They had to keep their friends inside the Ulster Unionists. Carson said they reached the six-county um, unit after days of going into the matter, quote, almost by parish by parish and townland by townland. Joe Devlin, leading a small band of nationalists in the House of Commons, the survivors, argued for nationalist safeguards, PR, um, a Senate reflecting nationalist numbers, a weighted Senate, which was actually granted in the South for Southern Protestants. Um, a stronger Council of Ireland, which was introduced, he got nowhere. And he wrote to an Episcopal friend in 1920, as far as I can see the situation, it means a parliament will be set up in the north of Ireland. He hasn't heard yet. Not for the whole of Ulster, but for six counties. Um, and, of course, um, he said that um, Carson will establish his parliament for his six counties. This will mean the worst form of partition, wrote Devlin, the coming man of 1914 in Irish nationalism. The worst form of partition, partition and, of course, permanent partition. Almost immediately, James Craig is part of a key committee preparing for partition. An assistant um, uh, secretary uh, for Ireland is appointed with headquarters in Belfast, Sir Ernest Clark. He's known as the midwife of the new Northern Ireland state. He begins uh, setting aside appointed des for the transfer of civil servants, for the changes in the judiciary, the establishment of a separate secretariat in Northern Ireland, uh, how the government departments will be set up. And of course, he also uh, is a, a major cheerleader for the establishment of a Nostra base auxiliary police force in Britain. Ex-soldiers are wrecking cities, plate glass windows in Liverpool and Glasgow. They don't want that happening here, where, of course, the shipyard is now declining, the post-war boom is soon coming to an end, and indeed, Craig argues, um, with others, for the establishment of the Ulster Special Constabulary, mopping up the returned soldiers of the UVF, uh, engaging... Um, sort of, uh, I suppose, laborers from the streets of Belfast, farm laborers from rural Ulster. They become soon a force 32,000 strong. Without that armed police force, armed and financed by the British government, partition couldn't have been established in South Armagh or West Tyrone or the Bogside. This becomes absolutely essential. And of course, by uh, December 1920, the act has been passed. By June 1921, Elections are being held in May 1921, North and South. But this was never about settling the South. This was also always about establishing, if you like, um, a self-governing unionist state in Northern Ireland. 
on lines dictated by Craig and his associates, who were junior ministers in the government. On the day the Northern Ireland Parliament opened, amidst trouble and violence, in which 450 people would die in two years, James Clegg, as Prime Minister-designate, the Parliament is opened in the City Hall, the Nationalists and Sinn Féin are absent, the beginning of abstentionism. And, of course, Winston Churchill wrote that very day. From that moment, he said, that Northern Ireland was established as a separate state with its own unionist parliament and police force. From that moment, Ulster's position became unassailable. And it was only then, in the spirit of the King's words at that speech, that Lloyd George opened negotiations with Sinn Féin about the South. And try as he might, as they might, Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith could not overcome the Ulster Rock and what they got in the treaty negotiations of 1921, um, captured here, the Irish delegation, they got a nebulous boundary commission with elements of dynamite, as Lord Buckmaster said, echoing, I think, the US Secretary of State, which would collapse in 1925, leaving the border established. A brief history of partition. Thank you very much. Now that Dr. Eamon Phoenix has concluded, we have the keynote talk by historian Liz Gillis. 1919, just to sort of give a bit more detail about 1919, because we've heard about the formation of Dáil Éireann, the Irish Parliament, being set up on 24th of January 1919. But that is also the day that the War of Independence begins in the 26th counties. The IRA, as they become known, they launched this conflict against the Crown forces. And the RIC are the, the front line of the British forces in Ireland at that time. And they are the target of the attacks by the Irish volunteers. But it's a different policy in Ulster. The IRA were told that it was not an offensive policy, but a defensive policy. And that was the same in 1916. If you read the witness statements and so on of participants, it was a different conflict that was going on and that the IRA were fighting. It was defensive, not offensive. But 1919 is dominated by the ambushes um, on the RIC around the country, Tipperary and Dublin. Um, and certainly in Dublin, it's an assassination war against um, the political police, the G-men and so on. So that's what dominates 1919. Now, 1919 was bad. It got an awful lot worse in 19. 20. And that was helped by the arrival of two forces that have been mentioned. Firstly, the Black and Tans in March, who were made up of ex-British Army soldiers, just ordinary rank-and-file soldiers. And then in August, um, you have the auxiliaries made up of ex-British Army officers. Now, a label has been given, a generic label has been given to these two bodies, that they were made up of criminals, they were dragged from their prisons. It wasn't true. The activities that they did and committed in Ireland when they got here were criminal but they weren't criminals they weren't made up from the criminal elements and um, which has been said that's a turning point in the, the conflict but to go back a little bit 1918 in terms of the rise of Sinn Féin as has been mentioned by Eamon and Alan um, you have the general election where Sinn Féin sweep the board where the Irish Parliamentary Party in the 26 counties um, it is no longer a force to be reckoned with you have another turning point in 1920 that was the big elections that was the general elections but the local elections they take place in January and June 1920 now to sort of combat 
the rise of Sinn Féin, um, the British government introduced proportional representation, believing that it was so confusing that um, the people would not understand how to vote and it would actually undermine the rise of Sinn Féin. But they didn't counter on what Sinn Féin would do and that they educated the people in the use of PR. Um, and it completely backfired because where you have some domination within the councils around the 26 counties um, of Sinn Féin, they completely win. It's like 1918 all over again because the people knew how to use the vote. Um, and that has an impact in Derry, in Tyrone, in Fermanagh. Um, in Derry, you have the first Catholic Lord Mayor um, being appointed in over 300 years. And one of the first things he did was to take the name of Lord French off the list for the freedom of the city. Now, Lord French was a thorn in the side of the IRA down south. He was Lord Attendant of Ireland. They tried to assassinate him loads of times, could never get him. But that was a strike at the establishment. Um, and that created a lot of tension and it led to actual conflict in Derry. You have members of the IRA leadership of the IRA from Dublin being brought up to Derry to try and organise the local volunteers, the local IRA units, because again, they were there to defend, not actually launch, launch an offensive campaign against the Crown forces um, in Ulster at that time. So this is just one of the many newspaper reports, and the newspapers are fantastic for getting the local stories, of the results of the local elections. So you have, as I said, in the case of Fermanagh and Tyrone, where Sinn Féin local councils were dominating there. Um, also, they got control of 10 urban councils around the area. So there is this threat, the rise of Sinn Féin, and um, PR, it backfired. Now, one interesting thing to know is that within a year of the, the, the state of Northern Ireland coming into existence, PR was abolished. Now, this event in Derry, where you have the Catholic Lord Mayor doing this, where he won't attend functions where there's no um, of allegiance to be taken. You have the riots that follow, the violence that follows, and that begins, you then begin to see a pattern of violence. But it's not to do with partition. Um, partition is part of the story, but it's other elements that actually lead to the violence that erupts, certainly within 1920, and then continues to escalate. One of those is the order from General Headquarters in Dublin for a nationwide attack um, across on civil administration and also the police authorities. Now, there was a, a policy within General Headquarters in Dublin not really to engage with uh, the, the northern units of the Irish Republican Army, but in 1920, the year getting organised, you have the arrival of the Black and Tans and it is escalating. So ambushes are becoming more prevalent. Um, you have the evacuation of RIC barracks across the country. The British government were expecting some big event in April 1920. They thought it was actually going to be another Easter rising. So they put a ring of steel around Dublin. They were completely off the mark because the actual action that was planned was the nationwide burning of the evacuated RIC barracks and the income tax offices. And the reason they attacked the income tax offices was to undermine the civil government. Um, and this order is given and it is to take place all across the country and income tax offices and RIC barracks across Ulster are targeted. And it happens on the 3rd, 4th, 5th and 6th 
6th of April. And here's just an account by uh, William Kelly. He was Dungannon um, volunteers, where he talks about um, the income tax office in Thomas Street, Dungannon. That was destroyed. The papers were destroyed. And the RIC barracks were destroyed as well. So that's one of the four sanctioned operations where you have that relationship from Dublin with the northern units um, of the volunteers of the IRA. But um, it really wasn't an awful lot. Just again, some more just to show the scale of these operations. You have Nori, where actually a member of the volunteers was arrested um, by the chap that was in the custom house where they tried to launch the attack. Uh, down Patrick, the income tax offices targeted there. So this was a propaganda coup for the IRA across the country. And again, the British government were caught completely unawares. But this is always leading to the build-up of tension because what the unionist politicians are seeing is this now, this spread of violence. What has been contained really down south is now beginning to spread. And how can they combat that? And it does unfortunately leads to tensions and increase in tensions and outbreaks of violence but it is really because of what well, I have found events down south that then have an impact on what happens up here. You have an actual attack after the IRA have been told to launch these attacks on the barracks that are evacuated. You then have more encouragement to attack barracks that are actually inhabited by members of the RIC. And it's the RIC, like down south, that were the, the, the front line of the Crown Forces, that are the initial targets of the IRA. And on the 16th of June 1920, you had the attack. It was a failed attack on Cookstown um, RIC barracks. Now, in many cases, what I've discovered is you did have um, friendly RIC men um, who were given information to the local IRA to tell them how to actually capture the barracks, more to capture the weapons because the IRA always needed weapons. So one way to get their weapons was to raid the barracks. And that was the case with the attack on Cookstown. Two RAC men actually, one called Conway and one called Leonard, they went to the local units again, Billy Kelly to Dungannon um, units. It wasn't a Cookstown unit that took part because there was very few volunteers in Cookstown. Um, so members of the Dungannon companies, they took part in this raid. And and although they had the help of two RIC men, um, the attack did not go to plan. Um, you have one volunteer, Patrick Lagran, where he was wounded by the head constable in the barracks. Um, he opened fire on the raiders and Patrick Lagran was wounded and he died shortly after. We can then again see this increase in activity with the Irish volunteers and that then helps to... Or, it, it sort of feeds into this increased tension within the communities, the divided communities. But you have two events that happen um, where the Cork IRA are involved. One actually happens down in Cork and then one happens in Lisbon, which leads to the explosion of violence in the summer of 1920 and starts with the assassination of this man um, in June, 17th of June 1920, um, Colonel Bryce Ferguson Smith. Now he was a, a divisional commandant of the RIC and he had made a speech, it's known as the Listowel Mutiny down in Kerry, where he 
encouraged members of the RIC to, to shoot suspected volunteers. Um, they may, may make mistakes, they could shoot innocent people, no one would be held to account because of this, but members of the RIC were horrified by what he was suggesting, a number of them resigned. This made him a target in the eyes of the IRA. Uh, Ferguson Smith was from Banbridge. He was assassinated um, in a, a country club down in Cork by members of the Cork IRA. Sean Lahan is one of them that's involved. To make matters worse, obviously people from Banbridge hearing about his assassination, they would be angry, they would be horrified. And what feeds into the tension is the fact that you had the railway strikes going on. Now, the railway drivers, they, they would not um, actually handle material, uh, allow troops to travel on the trains. Um, and they refused to allow um, Colonel or Ferguson Smith's funeral or his coffin to be actually put on the train. This created a lot of tension and this is leading to the build-up, the build-up, the build-up. Um, his funeral took place um, a couple of days later in Banbridge and literally the area did explode. Um, there was sectarian violence. It was the, 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 the unionist Protestant population just burning out Catholics and so on of their homes. There are riots that follow. Um, the British government were a bit reluctant to... to get involved, as were the leadership of the IRA down south and um, the leadership of the IRA in Belfast, because you do have violence spread into Belfast as well. Um, they didn't want to get involved and didn't want to protect um, the, the, their, their, their Catholic neighbours. And you have the intention building up between the junior members of the IRA and the leadership of the IRA. And you have one example where um, an IRA man, a young volunteer, um, he got involved in protecting his area in Belfast from the violence that was going on. And he was actually court-martialed by the IRA for going against the policy that they had tried to enact. So this assassination... This really kicks it off, but it's not the end. You can see there again from the newspaper reports, graphic accounts of outbursters, um, accounts of looting. There's people getting burnt out of houses. There is riots. There's people getting beaten up. There's people getting killed. And this just starts a long, long train of events, which is only heightened by the events that happen in August. Now, we have to go back to March 1920 to bring you forward to um, August. And again, it's Cork. Events in the south have a huge impact on what happens up here. Um, and the man in the centre there, he was the Lord Mayor of Cork. Um, he was also the commanding officer of the Cork Brigade of the IRA. And he was uh, shot in front of his family, in front of his wife, at his home by members of the RIC in March 1920. Now, there was an inquest and you have... A verdict of willful murder being brought against the British government, Lloyd George has mentioned, but also another person that has mentioned is D.I. Swansea, Oswald Swansea. And he was from Lisbon. Swansea was based down in Cork, but he had to get out of Cork. He went back to Lisbon because they wanted to basically get revenge for um, McCourton's killing. And you have members of the Cork IRA pushing Dublin to act against Swansea and that did happen in August uh, 1920 where on the 22nd of August members of the Cork IRA supported by members of the Belfast IRA supported by members of the Dublin um, squad that was Collins, um, Collins' assassination unit 
um, they came up to Lisbon and they assassinated Swansea as he came out of mass on a Sunday morning. And with that assassination, again, it just exploded. The violence just went it went crazy, um, but not just in Lisbon, it spread. Now, you have also the, the labour disputes that are happening at that time. Um, so it's tension building up and spreading all over. And again, I cannot state the importance of the local newspapers for getting these stories out, for bringing it down to the local level. But the assassination of Swansea has a huge and detrimental impact um, on the, the, the communities up here. Predominantly Catholic areas are the ones that are affected, but you have both Catholics and Protestants killed. People are expelled from both communities from their areas. And it just continues. Now, in response to this, as Eamon already mentioned, um, you have this fear from the, the unionist community that the British government are not going to act, um, that the violence from the south will spread. Um, Craig had called for reinforcements from the British army. He was not getting them. Um, he did urge for then the establishment of the, the special uh, forces, um, the special units, um, because members of the RIC weren't necessarily trusted because you had a lot of Catholic uh, members, people who had come from the south and as we saw earlier with the Cookstown um, attack that they were sympathetic, some were sympathetic to the IRA um, and the A specials B specials and C specials those forces were raised and you just see a typical ad, this is from 1921 um, a meeting to set up you know, um, the, 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 the B specials there and that's in McGann uh, Memorial Hall, Newton Arch Road. So you would have thousands of people joining these forces. So whereas down south you have the IRA that were fighting the RIC, the Black and Tans, the Auxiliaries, and then the British military up here, it is the RIC, then the Specials, then the Black and Tans, the Auxiliaries, and the British military as well. Um, and again, it all just leads to this tension increasing and increasing and increasing. Um, and unfortunately, both communities feel more ostracised. So you have the raising of the B specials, so A specials, C specials, and that is the Protestant community responding, the unionist community responding to the perceived threat. You also then have a, a change in the organisation of the IRA in 1921. And whereas you had the IRA um, broken up into brigades, so you had a Cork Brigade, Dublin Brigade, um, Tyrone Brigade, all around the country. In 1921, the early 1921, they decided that they would break them into divisions. So you have four northern divisions, four second, third, fourth. Um, you have the four southern divisions. Um, and this was basically set up to give more control, centralised control, General headquarters in Dublin would send out orders and then to their various units, their various divisions, and be more concentrated efforts um, and operations. And in the military archives, if you haven't looked at that website, I would really recommend looking at that website. Um, they've released fantastic documents, but bringing it down to a local level, and there are documents relating to the northern divisions. Um, this is just one example of the type of documents that you will find there. Um, and this was... Um, um, uh, from the Tyrone 2nd Northern Division area and it was uh, the, the plans for a proposed attack on Coal Island 
RIC barracks in um, 1921, 22, but also you have the details of what the units were doing, of who was where. So it is really bringing it down to a local level. So you can see both sides are responding to the, the conflict that is escalating. I suppose more emphasis was trying to be put um, on the Northern Divisions as to get them active and to get them um, attacking the Crown Forces, attacking the RIC. And even though partition, the Government of Ireland Act, um, had been introduced in 1920, it wasn't actually against partition that these actions were taking place. It was to take pressure off the south. So you have an increase in activity in the northern units, but it's nothing to do with partition. It is to take the pressure off the south. Now, again, um, you have... Highs and lows, there is real flashpoints of tension, um, of violence between the communities. Um, again, more expulsions, um, people being burnt out of their homes, and that just does dominate for, for the, the next two years. But, as again mentioned by Eamon, you have the setting up of the, the Northern Parliament in June 1922. And with that being set up, it did give... The, the British government um, that opportunity to then deal with the 26 counties, to deal with the question of how do you end the War of Independence. Um, and that is exactly what happens, because within two and a half weeks, three weeks of um, the Northern Ireland Parliament opening, you then have the truce um, being declared in the 26 counties. The War of Independence, it came to an end. Now, there were great celebrations across the country that peace had finally come, that the conflict was over. Um, it was time for peace. It was time for politics. It was time for talking. But although the truce came into effect on the 11th of July, at 12 o'clock on the 11th of July, 1921, it was actually known from the 8th of July that the truce was going to come into effect. So there were three days. And those three days, literally everyone on both sides was given a free reign to do whatever they wanted. Now, some units across the country, they didn't take up that offer. They thought, why would we start doing stuff now? Why have that risk? Why start something when we're this close to it being over? Um, but other units, they continued right up until the last minute. Um, and that's on both sides, both the British Crown Forces and the IRA. And... You can find that here um, in Cookstown, where you have the burning of Dunes Creamery. Now, this was as an act of reprisal because one of the policies that was introduced by the Crown Forces, especially by the Auxiliaries um, and the Black and Tans, was the, the burning of creameries, of co-ops. You make a community responsible for the actions um, of the local IRA units. And as an act of reprisal, for a local volunteer hall or a volunteer hall that had been burnt down in Dromore, I think it was, um, the local, the cook, uh, sorry, Zungannon IRA decided that they would then do what the auxiliaries had done previously and they would burn Dunes Creamery. And this happened literally within an hour of the truce coming into effect on the afternoon of the 11th of July 1921. And Dunes Creamery, or Dunes, the business is still going strong today. But you can just see the, the, local, the local level 
of involvement and a local connection with what was going on at this time. So the truce comes into effect. Um, as I said, it was a time for politics. Violence was parked for the time being. Um, let the politicians talk, see if they can come to a conclusion. Um, and there was hope that something could be realised, that a lasting peace could be realised, but people didn't know what the future looked like. The only thing that was certain um, at that moment in time was partition. The island had been divided. Um, the two parliaments had been set up. Um, and sadly, the decisions that were made at that time, we are still living with today. Um, but it is amazing and fantastic that we have a conference like this today, that we can talk about these issues from both perspectives, get all of this history out. It is there to be discovered um, and not just the big stories, not just the big areas, but right down to the local level. And on that note, I'll say thanks a million for listening to me. Thanks to our keynote speakers, Professor Alan Sharp, Dr. Eamon Phoenix and historian Liz Gillis, who were speaking at our special regional conference entitled Partition, a Dividing Ireland in a Dividing Europe. Next up, we have a panel discussion chaired by Jacqueline Irwin, Chief Executive of the Community Relations Council. The panel discussion will focus on how partition is of particular relevance to contemporary society in Northern Ireland. The panel is comprised of Dr. Eamon Phoenix, Paul Mullen of National Lottery Heritage Fund NI, Liz Gillis, Maureen Hetherington from The Junction, and Alan Sharp. To begin with, they will each focus on a recap of the various discussion groups they attended as an earlier part of the conference. Then they'll delve much deeper into partition, its lasting legacy, and how its effects are still relevant today. First up is Dr. Eamon Phoenix. We had representatives of um, the Lisbon Museum and Fermanagh and Oma District Council uh, telling us what they're doing really in relation to the decade, you know. And a lot of very exciting things came out of that. I suppose the, the main thing really is we're coming into a period of intense violence on the island as the War of Independence begins to escalate in 1919, overspilling into what was then the historic Ulster, serious sectarian repercussions to all of this in towns like Banbridge, Dromore, Lisburn, Belfast, and so on. I was saying that Belfast actually had a, a accounts for 21% of all the casualties on the island of Ireland between 1917 and 1922. Uh, so that's sort of 21%. So that is an awful lot. It's the highest number of casualties for any area. And uh, that's Belfast and County Antrim. So we looked at all that, but we saw how Lisburn Museum are very bravely engaging with things like the sectarian violence which followed the IRA assassination of D.I. Swansea in 1920, how a local community group, for example, has been involved in um, doing a study of 1916, going to Dublin from the Tona estate, and indeed Pauline from Oma was telling us about the, the massive interest there in things like women's history and I mean, how they have had a number of workshops and all of that. And in the audience, there were other people from North Down to Belfast to uh, elsewhere uh, who have been heavily involved in this. So a lot of good work is being done. It's a point of contact for the two communities. It's um, a way into the period in terms of looking in a dispassionate, balanced way. And I think the principles have been very important in regulating and monitoring the whole debate. I w was in Ellen's session, and um, it very much was Seamus and Maureen taking us uh, through the work that uh, The Junction are doing. 
and uh, the um, various workshops that they have been um, uh, uh, developing or, or, and are planning to sort of roll out over the next period of time. Looking at a lot of the material, for example, the Ulster sort of covenant and some of the words contained within it. And ultimately, I, I suppose, sure, giving a real sense of, of there are uh, so much material sort of out there, historical material, which can engage communities that communities can really get involved with in a very, very tactile way. And hopefully out of that will emerge a much better sort of a understanding of the, the, the nuances of the past. And um, we went on to uh, uh, talk about, I suppose, the uh, 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 how one creates sort of a, an environment of uh, sort of narrative hospitality, creating how do we create the space within which um, we can have positive engagement as opposed to the uh, uh, antagonistic, the Nolan show uh, uh, approach, which we're all too familiar with, which is, is clearly something that very, very few of us learn much from, apart from uh, the divisions that there are in society. Um, but I mean, I think this is where sort of a, a, a conference like this today and a lot of the material that we're coming across, hopefully uh, uh, opens uh, people's eyes to the potential of using uh, uh, this historical material in finding a, a better way of negotiating the past today. And um, our workshop um, was Graham and uh, Neve and Neil and Lindsay from uh, Prony and it was great to hear their vision of the future projects and the engagement with um, local communities and what people would like to see showcased um, in future um, exhibitions, the 100 stories, the, the 100 documents, and um, because Prony itself is going to be celebrating the centenary, which is fantastic. So giving the, the, the people a chance to, to have input into what they want to, to see um, and to explore, um, and also shown by showcasing what they have, what the collections have, some are actually in on site that you physically have to go in. So go to your local archive, go to your local library, but also many um, items are digitized because that's shown the nature of the change in which we can access material as well. But you, you should always go to the source itself. It's great to see it online, but go to the library, go to, to, to the archives and hold those documents. And the work that they're all doing is absolutely amazing. But it's bringing it into the 21st century. Neil showcased that with Niall showcased that with the, the, the animation, which is brilliant. And it, it, it reaches out to a wide range of people who don't necessarily think they may be interested in history, but it's something to get them hooked. Um, and then I will always bring it back to the liberties wherever I can. Um, I was completely shocked by Graham's presentation when he, he just put up a document about the, the migration in 1922 of the Catholics leaving um, the North and the Unionists leaving the South. And there was an address, 54 Cork Street, which is at the back of my house. So I now have to find out who this uh, Steenson chap was. To So there is cross-border involvement right there in front of you. So you don't know what you're going to ex discover, explore. But the encouragement from these institutions is it is there. It is your archives. These are the archives of the people. Go and look, go and discover. You might not like what you find, but it's better to have it there and find it than to not have it. And they're to be commended for the work that they have been doing and continue to do. Paul has summed up very well the session that, uh, that I was with, with, with Seamus and Maureen. The, the point I would add was that I think one of the things we were trying to bring out was that there, uh, the, the voice that you hear now as being 
the voice of history was not the only voice which was there at the time. And the possibility, therefore, there's an alternative vision of what was happening in the past and perhaps a more optimistic vision. But the problem, of course, remains that, and that's probably true today as well, I'm sure it's true today, but the problem remains then as it was, as it is now, how does one get to that, those alternative visions, and how do those people have the chance to bring, get that in, into the public domain? And of course, it's history is written by the winners. It's hard for me to say anything because we were involved in delivering the workshop. I thought it was very good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a wee bit biased. Um, and it was about drawing the parallels of what happened there and then around partition and the parallels and the similarities of today. Uh, and it was about exploring uh, how there are so many more creative voices um, and there, were mo there was more than one uh, covenant uh, and that's not widely known. And, and the voices and the way in which they were put together, had we listened to those and bought into those, we'd be living in a very different society today. That actually is quite like one of the questions. So maybe if we start from there and then open it up for some of the questions from the floor. We're thinking today about events 100 years ago and at the same time um, we have ongoing sets of 50 year anniversaries in relation to the more recent conflict and all of this at a very unsettling current context. Do you think that people are drawing comparisons or perhaps easy comparisons or inappropriate comparisons and is that wise? And linked to that, then I've got uh, a question that is, are there special issues to be taken into account when you're dealing with living memory? I'll start with you, Maureen, just because you're on that theme. And then well, we are a community relations resource and peace building initiative, and it is about community relations training and education. And I suppose for me, every time I go out to do a workshop or deliver training, I'm learning a lot myself. There is an appalling lack of knowledge out there and it's not about the people, but the way in which society has been put together, the way that people have access to other or not other histories or stories. Um, so it's hard to draw comparisons when you don't know the detail. And it's something about this binary notion of, uh, you know, it's every, everything is, history is made simplistic uh, in the way that we understand it and we miss the complexities. So it's very hard for people to draw comparisons and the lack of knowledge and information that you don't avail of. And as Liz was saying, the importance of looking up and, you know, finding that uh, education part of it and drawing people into finding out more about their history instead of buying into the, the myths and folklore. So I don't think that they can draw comparisons. We have a huge amount of people from the cross community sectors that come along and that is about building their own knowledge and skills and capacity in order for them to take the learning out and widen it. So dealing with living memory, it's limited. Uh, and the reality is that living memory is always changing. And as, as our knowledge develops then the memory that we hold on to, um, you know, we are the stories that we tell ourselves. And it's about opening ourselves up to other possibilities, to a much larger story, uh, to embrace that um, and bring it into our living. Whereas it's very narrow when you live in a segregated society. Uh, and you're limited. Um, and it's hard because most people, it's bread and butter issues. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a wider community out there and it's squealing out for just essential things around health and education and stuff like that. So 
Yes, they always say history is a thing of the past, but it keeps some of us in a job, you know. Um, <laughs> but um, yes, I, I remember, I mean, as we started this, we're just coming to terms with the decade of St. Henry's and feeling we were, all of those involved from museums to GROs to, um, uh, you know, the Community Relations Council and so on, we felt that we must be doing something right. We've got as far as 1916, the Somme, the Rising, and we linked those two events, and that worked very well. Some people objected, there's no comparison. But in the end of the day, looking at both meant you could look at each, and that worked very well. And there were some strange and quirky links we can't go into. Um, but people then feared, no, no, we're coming to the 50th anniversary of the beginnings of the Troubles, the civil rights movement, the fall of Terence O'Neill, internment, Bloody Sunday, Bloody Friday, all the other bloody days. Um, and people are still very wounded by that, having lost loved ones, atrocities. We know the polarization and all of that. So far, I've found, though, that hasn't been a problem. I've been asked, and I'm sure others have, to give talks on the civil rights movement. August 1969 was a thing this year. Now, one thing I must say, I remember 10 years ago, certainly 15 years ago, being asked by a cross-community forum to give a talk on the background to the civil rights movement and so on. And they said, you know, you can expect walkouts. You know, people said you can. This has been the most difficult thing, bringing community groups from both sections of the community right across Northern Ireland to this. People will get up, object, say you're telling lies. Now, that's never really happened to me, uh, I must say, personally. And it didn't happen, but there was a tension. Then I found 10 years ago, you could do it. There was no tension anymore. People could engage sensibly with civil rights because in many ways, education, the fact that all of this has been on the national curriculum here since 1988, if not their children, their grandchildren, they're bringing this back home and asking granny, uh, you know, what happened in 69? You know, where did Ann Paisley start? Who was John Hume? You were starting to get those sort of questions. And I find certainly last summer talking about this in places like Armagh and places like West Belfast, I found that there was no issue uh, right across the community. People were prepared to engage with the, the contemporary history that some universities and some academics are frightened of touching. Um, in terms of parallels, yes, indeed. I mean, um, I do a newspaper column every day, have done, not quite since the newspaper was founded, but for about 30 years. And I, was, I got as far as 1919, I was getting on famously, and then the editor said, we would like you to do 69 as well. So anyway, I started, and a lot of people said to me, got all these complaints, why are you doing 69? We all remember that, it's 1919, we want the eve of partition and all of that. Since I've started it though, there's been a massive positive feedback about looking at those two years, because there are parallels. Uh, we are into the post-Brexit or the pre-Brexit or whatever sort of, um, the Brexit world at the moment. Um, we're into Trump in America. In 1919, we were on the brink of partition, unforeseen changes that we talked about this morning. But we were also, of course, dealing with the peace of Versailles, the rise of nation states, America's rejection of Wilson's treaty, all of that there. So instead of Trump in the White House, you had a president who was almost disempowered by his involvement at Versailles. Um, and you had all of that there. So there are parallels. And of course, we're talking about population movements, which were then really in train surrounding the War of Independence, the partition of Ireland. I reckon 50,000 nationalists left what became Northern Ireland. That was a free state statistic pouring south, particularly in 1922. Um, Protestants coming north from as far away as West Cork, the border counties, settling for Manor in 1926. 
in a census that sadly in detail has now been destroyed, destroyed by the Northern Ireland government in World War II to get rid of waste paper, so they burnt the census. But from the reports we have on it, very limited, we can see that Fermanagh had a far higher proportion of people born in what became the Irish Free State than any other county in the north. These were people who had left Cavan, Leitrim, Sligo, Cork, and come north from a Protestant background. So we've got those two stories that we're going to have to look at in detail in these years. It's going to be difficult. Um, and then, of course, um, we have the biggest population movement in Western Europe since the Second World War here between 1969 and 1972. Between something like 60 and 100,000 people were forced to move from their homes during that period because of violence, intimidation, fear, you know? One thing so, you know, Bobby Sands was brought up in the Rathcool estate. His family were driven out. Um, I'm sure many Protestants were driven out of nationalist areas. And that left a scar, which was managed by the Community Relations Commission at that time um, very well, but it was a small unit of government headed by Morris Hayes, dealing with a massive problem. And until the Yugoslav Civil War, we saw nothing like that since 1945. So, I mean, you can see the parallels. And yet, so far, we seem to be inured to looking at this. There's so much good practice around. There's so much objective history. There's so much of our lines on the, on the sources, whether documents, diaries, or audiovisual from the period, you know, being, if you like, mediated by, you know, groups like this, councils, all the rest, that a lot of good practice is there. So I don't really fear it. But certainly, it's going to be as challenging as dealing with what um, uh, F.E. Crawford, the founder of the B-Specials, called the Lisburn Pogrom in 1920, uh, or Bloody Friday in 1972. I just wanted to come in on that. Eamon was talking about 68 and the impact of the, uh, 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 the challenge of the civil rights movement. The Ulster Museum um, have developed an exhibition on 68 developed by Chris Reynolds from Nottingham Trent University. And uh, I think it, 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 it involves some very interesting approaches to how we think about some of the more contemporary past. And um, what he has done is basically take 30 interviews of people right across the spectrum, from people involved in the civil rights movement um, to people who are involved in politics today. So you've got from Bernadette Devlin to Mervyn Gibson, Nelson McCausland, uh, 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 Anne Devlin, and others. Um, such a range of people representing a whole range of different perspectives on civil rights. Now, at first, whenever you're confronted by that, and you were, you'd be saying, well, I don't want, I'm not interested in listening to them. I'm not interested in listening to them. And it immediately gets you to face your own prejudices about how people view the past. Um, because we, we, you know, we, we think we know what happens, but we only kind of know one narrative. And what it encourages people to do is to think that there are many different stories out there, many, many different narratives of the past, which if we're to um, uh, uh, really engage with them today, we do need to take on board. We may not agree with them, but we need to understand that other people have other opinions about a particular topic. And we can't just deny them. These are sincerely held views by people. So I think there, there, there is work that our museums uh, 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 and other institutions can do by presenting material like that in a way that you can actively engage with it. Disagree with it, agree with it, but have that conversation. Um, uh, uh, museums can promote this sense of civic dialogue with the past. Um, moving on from the 68 exhibition, you go into the Troubles Gallery. The Troubles Gallery, I think, is quite transformational in terms of 
uh, uh, how it engages with our more recent past. Because you can go in there, whatever your background, you can go in there as a loyalist, you can go in there as a Republican, you can go in there as a police officer, and you will see elements of your own story there, as well as others. It's encouraging you to see that there are other perspectives which you may or may not agree with, but it represents society uh, uh, as a whole. We need to create more spaces, I think, in that regard. And that's what, in many ways, why um, uh, uh, certainly uh, as then the Heritage Lottery Fund, now the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the Community Relations Council sort of engaged in the decade of centenaries work um, where we realize that people will go and, and um, imagine the past in all the different ways that they will imagine the past. But in terms of civic space, I think there was a responsibility to provide an opportunity for people to engage with the facts of what happened in a way where you could be exposed to the, the many different interpretations uh, of the past and recognize the, the implications of uh, uh, all of those elements working together. And that's why I think uh, uh, it is actually important to engage uh, uh, in the, 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 this area of the decade of the centenaries. But it's also about trying to create a vision for the future. Um, we need to be able to imagine what our future looks like um, and uh, we can only do that with an understanding of the past, but being prepared to put uh, those bits that hold us back um, uh, in, in the binary narratives. Uh, uh, we've got to find ways to unshackle ourselves. And I think discussions like this, engaging in this type of material, gives us the opportunity to do that. Uh, questions from the floor. You've had time to think them up. Anybody? how quite often you're talking to the willing uh, and how how do you get those people who don't see it as being something they need to know about or uh, nothing they have to learn other than what the story they already tell themselves and how do we engage with them? So maybe you're happy with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on the political issue, I mean, some of us and sure uh, others in the audience have actually interfaced with MLAs. You're sometimes asked by a council, certainly I was recently, to go in and talk about an idea that the officers of the council have and they want to put it to that particular committee of the council. And they want to bring in somebody who knows something about it to give a sort of a presentation and try to shape it so that everybody feels included and that any misapprehensions people may have about it, that it might be about one side of the community only or propaganda for a particular uh, ideology is kind of airbrushed out. You know, you've gone there to clarify it. And that has done a lot before. So when you say MLS, they are actually, they aren't quite MLS. These are councillors. At the moment, MLS aren't doing an awful lot. But uh, councillors, certainly, who, who have a budget to do things like we are uh, attending today. Um, uh, and, you know, you're, you're talking to people who come from different backgrounds, different parties, different allegiances. But at the end of the day, I think I find a lot, and there are some exceptions across the region, but I find a lot that there is a consensus that we have to get this right. People will cite the principles, start from the facts, acknowledge different narratives, look at the fact that this has implications and repercussions. That's generally known. And there are people are, actually I find they bend over backwards to be careful, to try to be neutral. And of course they're helped a lot by the experts from the councils, some of whom were speaking this morning in my workshop. So you've got all that as well. So I think that's happening. In terms of these events though, um, some of them are intergenerational, but we tend to attract what we now call people of a certain age. <laughs> and people of a certain age are more concerned with finding somebody 
was able to take them across the road than divine their political or religious background. We know that. But I am glad to say that some various councils, but one I was working with recently, Mid-Ulster Council, actually confronted this problem. Of course, they have these events for people who may be retired or whatever. They've also interfaced with schools. And we had a great event in Ben Burb recently where we actually had an event where uh, three or four schools came along to engage with it as an A-level topic partition and its outcome. But they invited the general public as well. And you have this intergenerational aspect. And it works really well. And it's very exciting. And in that way, the kids go home. They tell the parents, maybe some of them come to the next one. And you can broaden it out. But I do think in terms of dealing with this decade, and we're sort of more than halfway through it now, Events like this, what the council are doing, what the libraries and museums are doing, community groups are doing, cross-community groups and cross-border, it's created a kind of a leavening, which has actually been helpful in a community. And I think F.S.L. Lyons, a famous historian, provost of Trinity, born in Derry, stroke Londonderry, um, he wrote famously in the 1980s, to understand the past is to cease to live in it. And that's what we are trying to do, believe it or not, even as historians. You know? Liz, do you face any of these issues in your work? People would tend to look at the big events, um, but what we have tried to focus on is the less well-known events, which are fascinating. Um, and one example I, I can give you, which has been sort of bandied about so much in terms of the revolution, was that the women were written over. And they, they were, but not by their contemporaries. Um, because if you look at the archives that are available, RTE, even before it was RTE, they were doing radio programs on the women and their involvement in 1916. In 1965, 66, the program Insurrection had the women there doing what they did in 1916. Um, the witness statements that military archives took, they were open up to women. Many women didn't actually go and make a statement because they didn't recognize the state. So it's more out there, political. They themselves are writing themselves out of history. And that narrative was bandied about because it was an easy thing to, st to say. Um, but over the last two years, there there's, has been more balance with that. And you would get it, as, as I'm saying, local councillors, I find, tend to come to these sorts of events more so than... The, the big politicians, and um, there have been exceptional Eamon O'Quave, who is a, a TD, who does a lot of cross-border mm -hmm. work. But Eamon is, is, you know, one of the few. But you can see then his approach is completely different. He can understand every side of the story. Um, so, yeah, I, I would like to see more involvement, but the narrative would always be changing. And it's easy for women politicians to say in 2016, the women were written out of history, they're now being written back. And I'm going, no, that's not the case. And then it's like, their stories are there. Just look at the archives, you know, it's, it's, it's it, you know, it's a bit of a, it's an easy, easy thing to, to say rather than just go look at the archives and there is the information. Um, and I suppose if, again, looking at it from, from the perspective of Dublin song, because we are coming into a really difficult period now, for the decade of commemorations. Because 1916 was easy to commemorate because it was this battle in Dublin for one week mm -hmm. between the British military and the Irish volunteers and FINA and, and, and so on, the different organisations. But the War of Independence was a guerrilla war. It was an assassination war. It was an intelligence war. And the lines are crossed and it is difficult. Mm -hmm. the, the government themselves are finding it difficult to commemorate. What do you commemorate? 
but the responsibility is being taken by the local communities who are doing fantastic work and they're, they're, um, they're shown both sides um, and the government are looking at what people are putting forth and then they will send a representative and so on. So at least they are engaging that way, but they're not driving it. It's the communities that are driving it and the communities are aware of the complex issues. And the next word that we're facing is the civil war. They're terrified to touch this. So we have a lot to learn and the politicians have a lot to learn. Don't be afraid of it. If the people can face this responsibly, surely you can come, leave the politics at the door and let's remember, agree with it, disagree with it, but don't dismiss it. I was calm until you mentioned politicians. <laughs> um, yes, the answer is yes, they absolutely would benefit. I have, I have never seen a bigger disconnect between the people and the politicians at the moment. There isn't one workshop or one course that we have been delivering, uh, but people are angry, that it's palpable. They are saying, why are they not coming to these workshops to understand better? Why are they not taking the lead? So there's a lot of frustration there, uh, and the disconnect is absolutely huge. We do not have a working assembly, and we are facing the largest, biggest constitutional crisis on this island for at least 100 years uh, and we don't have the representation to speak for us uh, and obviously with Brexit you would hear voices in the room and they would hear it. I've spoken to six people in different workshops over the last two weeks where people now can't get drugs because of Brexit. So the reality is hitting hard and it's hitting on the ground. There's a hundred million pounds being spent on agencies to bring in enough people for the NHS and yet they're not employing local people or people you know on the ground to go into those places. There's things like that, you know, as I said earlier, they're bread and butter issues, but they all feed into the bigger political mess that, that we are in. Um, there's 100,000 people here in Northern Ireland waiting for long-term care, whereas there's 1,000 over in England. And that's the political, that, that's where we need the politicians to speak up for Northern Ireland. And the fact that we don't have a working assembly, we have Brexit, we have this huge issue around partition. Uh, and if they were out in the ground, people could tell and exp you know, tell them to, you can't work on, you know, working towards your own party based on self-interest. It has to be for the common good. And if they'd hear the wider people on the ground whose voices aren't heard because democracy is no longer in existence here, it's pacts, it's binary, you know, one or the other, and it's based on fear. And I think that that all feeds into the fact that if they were out and on the ground, hopefully they might see a different, um, different picture rather than keeping self-preservation and self-interest. We have uh, engaged politicians in the past, and the most important thing and helps lessen the fear is they come through the door as a human being, uh, an individual, a person who lives here, and they take off all their hats at the door. And that helped in the past them to be that person who has lived and had lived experience like all of us. And if we engage them in those lived experiences, and what is so sad is, as Maureen said, that engagement has, has disappeared. And it's because of the vacuum that we have created here, because of our inability even to, to look at our agreement, which is only 20 years ago, because I'm looking at all of this, and we're trying to learn lessons of 100 years ago. Well, let's learn the lesson of 100 years ago that we need to learn the lessons of 20 years ago. And we need to be working with those lessons whilst we, the distance of that shows us what's happened. 
that today, 20 years ago and today, is something we should all be able to work with because the agreement was about all of us and was balanced in a way with all its ambiguity as we've talked about, but also with the spirit and the values of it that we should be able to take off all our hats and go into those spaces, the creation of those safe spaces and the appeal is for every single citizen. Whatever hats you wear, come together and let's have those conversations because there's a few generations from now, we'll be looking back 100 years and we don't want them to be looking at that and then looking, you know, all these years on and finding what did we do about it. Yeah. Obviously, you mentioned the word fear and in an earlier workshop, I heard words like shame and anger and hurt and so on. So it was, is a very tumultuous period and in that context and for those people who are out here at the moment maybe looking for somewhere to engage with this period that is slightly less contentious or um, opens up an opportunity to talk about points of connection and common cause, common good and so on. Were there any themes during that period that were binding? that were actually helpful in bringing people together or strains of thought or activities that were actually attempting to find common cause in that uh, tremendously fractured period? Yeah, yes, I mean, 1919, if you want the really hopeful sign, it's the beginning of a new international structure, the League of Nations, which doesn't ever achieve its ultimate objective, which is to prevent another, prevent another war. But what it does do is create an international civil service which deals with difficult issues like um, the whole problem of drug, drug abuse, trafficking of women, the problems of humanitarian. Um, Nansen, for example, the, the, the explorer, finishes up in charge of an organization which is looking after all the displaced people who haven't got passports and produces structures for them so that they can settle somewhere. There's also a lot of thought goes into the, into the problem of what happens to people who are left on the wrong side of borders. Uh, not, not everywhere, uh, not, among the, not among the winners, if you like, but among the losers um, or among the new states, they're, they're, they're required to sign up to certain treatment of uh, minorities who are left behind. On, I mean, national self-determination is wonderful, uh, but if it doesn't work for you, which, which it doesn't for many people in Europe in the 19... 20s, it's even worse than it was before 1914, because in 1914, where you were, was nothing to do with self-determination, it was to do with what had happened in the past and treaties and so on, but now you were told you had the chance to choose, and then you would, that choice was taken away from you, and you finish up in the wrong country, that's very distressing. So the idea of minority protection, the idea of international criminal law, which developed um, farcically really in 1919, which develops into Nuremberg and now into the International Criminal Court in the, 19, in the 2000s. Uh, the, the, the structures of international society, which perhaps sadly are under, under threat at the moment, um, the idea of, of the rule of law, international law, and so on, yes, there, there, are, there are hopeful signs in, in, in 1919. And I mean, one of the, I, I always used to use cartoons a lot when I was teaching. And there was a very nice, lovely German cartoon of the German delegates arriving at the Paris Peace Conference, and there are two buses waiting for them. And one is the bus to peace, and the other is the bus to the next war. And it wasn't clear in 1919 which one they were taking. Nor, uh, to get on another hobby, would I blame 1919 for 1939? There's a big gap between the two. Yes, well, I mean, looking at the Irish situation in the early 20s, there wasn't a great deal to 
um, you know, pick out that it was actually building bridges to any great extent. I mean, um, the possibility of good north-south relations, two things, the possibility of better relations in Northern Ireland uh, was raised by the Craig Collins Pacts of 1922, especially the second one that detailed policing, the restoration of people to their jobs and housing. Um, there were relief schemes funded by the British government, signed by Collins and Craig in London. But of course, it was washed away, as somebody said, in a river of blood. The violence continued. There were vested interests north and south that wanted to disrupt it in these years and embarrass those who had signed it on both sides of the border. And at the end, of course, we have a situation by 1925, the Boundary Commission collapses, we have special powers in the north, um, and we have basically got no minority safeguards here. Slightly better in the south, because of course, the role of the Southern Unionists had been quite important in British high politics on the Irish question. And they were able to buy a safeguarding mechanism under the treaty which became the Irish Free State Senate. And for 15 years after 1922, before de Valera altered it into a mere reflection of the Doyle, 50% um, of the representatives of the Senate in Dublin were Protestants. It was chaired by a former Unionist MP who had been a minister in the days of the Black and Tans, uh, Lord Glenavy, Sir James Campbell. You had lords, you had business interests like the Jamesons of Whiskey and so on. And they, had a, they reviewed something like 2,000 pieces of legislation in the 1920s and early 30s and could feel that they were actually part of a free state they had never wanted. In Northern Ireland, of course, the nationalists opposed the state. They never wanted to be part of it. They abstained for most of the 20s. And when they went in and they did seek some sort of reforms and make common ground with labor, PR was abolished, which meant that the possibility of independent thinkers outside the two main camps, orange and green, just diminished. Labour failed to become a, a source, a force, and liberalism began to fade away. And the only nationalist bill that got through was the Wild Birds Act of 1931, which was a famous case, often quoted in the days of civil rights. So the Cold War, you had a Cold War in the North, the suspicion of us and them, a unionist-dominated state, and of course you had a Cold War between North and South, uh, which no one expected. Remember, partition from a British point of view was to be a temporary expedient. Eventually, that Council of All-Ireland, which had been included in the Partition Act, um, was to evolve into an All-Ireland Parliament on the basis of consent. All of Ireland still within the UK. That never happened. The Council collapsed. And in the end, of course, O'Neill Lamas was the first meeting at the end of the Cold War. And we know what that led to. <laughs> The Wild Bird Act, I'm quite taken by the idea of other species coming to our aid. <laughs> I think we could be doing with some of that. Paul, do you want? Yes, um, I'm just picking up actually uh, Alan's point about the rules-based order, which is seemingly under threat at, at the moment. And, you know, it is, to me, some, some of these things are very simple. We live in a global world. We have global problems. Therefore, we need global solutions. We need to think with, you know, uh, we recognise the challenges are complex, so you know we shouldn't be reducing every issue down to its its simplistic zero sum game. Our politicians are very good at that. Um, I and uh, I mean I think this is where our politicians should be challenged. Uh, how often do they speak only about their own community and for their own community, or how often do they speak beyond their community to uh, society as a whole? And it'd be great if you could do a little league table that will show how well they are doing, who are the ones who aspire to being uh, statesmen and women, or who are the ones who simply are, are about uh, uh, um, feeding 
their own, own populace. And that's about the values that we want in our society. Um, I don't think there's, an, uh, there's ever enough talk, maybe it's seen as idealistic nonsense, about what really are the values we want to do and what we want to create. And I think the point about um, a Good Friday Agreement is very important. We should be going back and what was good about that? What really were we trying to do and achieve there? Problem is, uh, uh, certain parties didn't buy into it and therefore um, will not in engage with that. But there's not enough discussion um, with all that we can see about what went wrong in the past or how things uh, um, sort of broke down and whatever. There, not, there isn't enough discussion about what is our vision for society in the future. And that's where in many ways heritage is, um, the, the working definition my organization uses for heritage is it's how, how people and communities want to use sort of the past uh, for today and for tomorrow. And you know what is heritage is it about the future. Thinking about heritage is about we should be thinking about it constructively, how it helps propel us towards um, a much uh, sort of a better situation than we find ourselves in now. And we can mark those people who simply are about using heritage and the past for destructive purposes. And there's just too much of that. Like there's any thoughts on the ties that bind and anything out of that period of history that we could draw something from? Um, well, it would have been just pre-1919, and it was the conscription crisis um, that did unite, not everyone, but it did unite um, communities. But there was one event that was born out of the conscri conscription crisis that was um, long forgotten, um, was barely mentioned by people who took part, and that was um, an event called Lawnamon, which was Women's Day that happened on the 9th of June, 1918 and where you had the national response to conscription, where a national pledge was taken and Labour, Labour united everyone. It was a huge moment. Um, general strike and up and down the country, people were involved in it. Um, and women had a role to play in that, but the women then realised that they themselves had a role to play and a lot to say in, in this event. So moderates, moderate nationalists, um, unionist groups, unionist women, um, they came together to see how they could address this issue of conscription. It ends up that coming on organized it because they had the experience of organizing big events. But it turned out to be this huge event where two thirds of the women of Ireland signed their own pledge on the 9th of June, 1918. But it brought communities together um, across the island where the women got together and said, you're not going to take a man into your army because conscription hadn't been introduced. Now, you wouldn't necessarily need conscription up in Ulster. The same reaction was different by that time between um, the South. But you did have Protestant women, Unionist women getting involved. You had Republican women. You had the, the trade unions getting involved. You had women who were not involved in politics. This is their moment of political awakening that, that comes. And the big thing about this was, it was women who were not going to get the vote in 19 when the general election came. But those women then got involved in local activism, not in necessarily to do with the big questions, but the local issues that were affecting their communities. So it's a, a fantastic event that was sidelined. Um, and it was only, and even the women themselves don't really talk about it. It's only a handful of them that talk about it. But um, and one great example of it is um, there is a ledger in Kilkenny um, Archaeological Society. Um, they found this ledger. It was 
the first half of it is a thousand names of women from Kilkenny City, um, Protestant, Catholic, nationalist, non, you know, it's across the board. But um, it, the second half is the receipt book for a dairy. And that's the only reason this book survives. But this is a mini census of a thousand women from Kilkenny that marched out on the 9th of June to make a stand against the British government, to say you're not going to take an Irishman into your army. It's not going to happen. And he united for that moment. It's a brilliant piece of, of history. And um, you know, is where people came together. It was just around the woman as well, and amazing woman like Isabella Todd that brought amazing reform. Uh, Margaret Cousins, other names of that time who made amazing step, you know, ways forward and embedding policy mm. around children, around vulnerability, you know. Uh, so those women at that time and the whole social movement and the women coming together to do uh, amazing stuff and mm. embedding important policy. There are some conversations happening, clearly without an executive at the moment, uh, 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 government departments feel quite sort of restricted in their ability to engage with this. Um, I was at a, a, a discussion which involved both the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Northern Ireland office, uh, sort of looking at sort of this, this period. And um, uh, there seemed to be a, a desire to continue with that conversation and see what it, it might mean. Um, how that will impact uh, on funding, I don't quite know. Certainly my own organisation um, is open for business in terms of projects which come to us, which want to explore um, uh, any aspect of heritage, providing you work towards uh, 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 the, uh, 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 the decade principles, um, which we um, have clearly sort of uh, uh, articulated. Um, so we'll see that space. We do know I mean, certain political parties are, have uh, made it very clear that they would like to be making more of 2021. And uh, I think therefore, it's a responsibility within civic space to show leadership in that regard. And um, I mean, I do know Delta City Council, amongst others, will be putting together, continuing on with, with their uh, sort of a, a decadent centenary uh, sort of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, sort of projects, and uh, uh, we will be able to see sort of leadership from certain quarters. I'm sure the likes of the Ulster Museum will be looking more particularly sort of uh, uh, at that um, uh, as well. Um, but what happens more broadly? I don't know. In terms of going forward, I would merely sort of uh, uh, advocate that you would work towards. Uh, uh, the use of the, the, the principles for remembering that have been developed um, because I think they are, they help create a space within which people can have a conversation from whatever part of the community. One of the things that we have learned through the projects that we have funded is that whenever sort of people um, actually try to do things in a very nice way without antagonizing people or whatever, ultimately the project is not as good as the one which ironically is prepared to engage more critically in the past and be challenging. And uh, that's what we've learned, that you can engage with this material in a challenging way, and actually everybody benefits from it. Um, there was actually a department, a Ministry of Community Relations, uh, which was set up with a view to really driving at the height of the troubles, let's be honest, although it, although it was called the Year of Reconciliation, but the troubles actually escalate in January 74. But the idea was to actually drive a kind of a community relations agenda 
um, in so many areas. Uh, and yet, of course, we have no Ministry of Community Relations now. I know we have the centre and civil servants doing their best in the vacuum we now have. But really, again, a lost opportunity. And one of the problems is we're talking about politicians appealing to the other community. I mean, the sad thing is here, history shows that doesn't really happen. There is a centre ground. It expands and shrinks. We don't know until next month where it actually stands at the moment. But effectively, politicians don't do that. I mean, we have two elections here. We always did two elections here since 1921. We all know that. And uh, we know that the issues which will dominate the platform, sharpened by Brexit, sharpened by identity politics, you know, are probably even more embittered and envenomed than they would have been 10 years ago or 15 years ago even though the Good Friday architecture is still there. And of course, demographic change is underway, and people are aware of that. We had one politician last year talking at a party conference of challenging demographics. So, you know, politicians are minded by all of that there. And that's why the importance of this forum and the groups that have sort of provided the umbrella for uh, the decade of centenaries, like Heritage Lottery, like the CRC, like the museums and the libraries, the community sector, because they have taken steps in faith which were not approved by politicians. In fact, politicians were so fractured and, and divided and conflicted that they actually didn't even like the title, Remembering the Future. There was even a move to reconstruct that in some way. That didn't really fail. But people have acted in spite of them. We've had a discussion. I think it's had a very good effect. It hasn't brought reconciliation. That's a very, very long-term object. But a lot of people look at things in a different way. And they're aware that there are a range of perspectives. And that what they inherited with their mother's milk wasn't necessarily all the truth, or even half the truth. So we've moved forward there. But the loss of that kind of vision of 74 or 1998, when you, know, you felt you were on the cusp of a tremendous positive transformation in this society. We're all realistic now. You know, we have to actually go right back and we have to look at this again. And we're trying, if Stormont comes back, there are going to have to be changes, obviously, to accommodate that. Um, you know, initiatives towards a shared future, you know, they got half hearted support and didn't really go anywhere. Shared housing. Yet the first sort of assault by paramilitaries on an East Belfast shared housing estate, nothing really was done and people had to leave. Um, and we have had all sorts of other issues uh, sectarianized around all of that. We have to be realistic, you know. I mean, if we're expecting our traditional politicians to be bending over backwards, suddenly producing some sort of, you know, inclusive, uh, transformative banner, uh, we're not going to find that. Uh, actually, as somebody, I think Maureen was hinting at there, there's a lot more common sense in the community, in ordinary groups, looking at the kind of, bread and butter issues of health and education and you know how some people can actually survive on current social welfare benefits at the margin and all of that and uh, you know I think that's 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 a good thing if Stormont comes back it will have to be a different Stormont because it's coming back sharpened by all the kind of um, if you like uh, fracturing that has occurred in the last three and a half years on top of the last let's be honest do we say 400 or 700 or 850 I'm not sure years before that. Uh, principles have come up quite a number of times here today. There would be two other things that, in answer to your question that I would uh, reflect on that I think have worked so far and could take us a long way into this next period as well. One is 
the idea of moving away from individual events. Uh, history wasn't, uh, you know, a series of individual events. It was this weave of currents of issues that were coming at all sorts of levels. And I think the earlier talks today demonstrated that, that at all levels of society, there are issues going on. And if you can manage to communicate the flow of history as you go, you have better chance of being able to take in more perspectives. And I think that has definitely worked and linked very much to that is this notion of humanizing the issues. So the use of drama and the arts um, have been really, really important. And some of the most um, memorable events, I think, that have been linked to all of this have started off with a piece of drama or whatever that have allowed the people in the room to see the issue through the eyes of an individual and their, their lived experience and then to work out from that. And so I, I absolutely think they've been invaluable. I think that's a brilliant question around, you know, what actions that, you you know, we can leave this room with and do because... It's something that groups, after they've gone through workshops, they're sort of saying, what can I do? Mm -hmm. So the first thing is don't become overwhelmed. Um, sometimes when I'm sitting at home with my husband watching the television, he shouts at the TV, <laughs> but I wouldn't recommend that either. Um, so it's about not becoming overwhelmed, but it's about every individual can make small changes. And you know in your heart, and it is about challenging it, uh, challenging things that are out there, whether it's sectarianism, racism, or whatever, and challenging the politicians if and when you get the opportunity. And there's a lovely um, phrase that Seamus uses all the time. I think it's uh, Margaret Mead, but never doubt that a, a, a small group of thoughtful, committed people can bring about change. In fact, that's all that it ever has been. So it is about believing in yourself that you can do it, encouraging others to believe in themselves. Uh, and then take the action that you know is needed to bring about change. In our workshop, we were, um, I know Dr. Raymond had made reference to um, the common history that we had, um, but we had no common memory. And we were also talking about how difficult it was um, for council officers actually to operate and deliver um, maybe shared history exhibitions and whatnot, perhaps because there, there was a need for a degree of distance um, with the elected um, councillors. And uh, it's not always easy, actually, to um, be delivering um, peace and reconciliation on the ground in the community when you have a backdrop of um, and a lack of support, perhaps, from elected representatives. And um, so they can stymie the work. And uh, Really, my comment was just to add maybe to the principles that maybe it could be something that could eventually become policy, that um, if we're adding to the principles about the complexities of our history and recognise the recognition of that we do have a common history. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Community Relations Council. You can also find out the latest news and activities from us on www.nicrc.org.uk.